0: It's an hour before midnight on February 27th, 1943, and nine Norwegian men, saboteurs, are slipping and sliding down a snow-covered, steep-walled gorge in Rika, Norway. Below them, the giant Vermork hydroelectric plant, bristles with Nazi guards. When it was built, the Vermork power plant was the largest in the world, It opened in 1911, and the cost of building it was more than the Norwegian national budget. Norsk Hydro needed every one of the 108 megawatts it could generate so they could make their signature product, nitrogen-based fertilizer. But that's not what the Norwegian saboteurs are after. Their goal is in the basement of the seven-story concrete hydrolysis plant. Hydro uses the electricity from the power plant to split water molecules into hydrogen and oxygen, a process called hydrolysis. The hydrogen can then be used to extract nitrogen from the air to make fertilizer. A byproduct of this process is a substance called deuterium, or heavy water. Hydro started to collect heavy water in 1935, shortly after it was discovered for scientific use. A chemist and professor at the University in Trondheim, Leif Tronstad, designed the Vermark system. But by this point, the Allies feared the Germans could use the heavy water from occupied Norway to aid their efforts to build an atomic bomb. It was enough of a worry that the Allies had already tried and failed in an effort that killed 41 British soldiers to blow up the heavy water plant. Just after midnight, the saboteurs cut the barbed wire and the metal fencing around the plant and enter the basement. A Norwegian worker inside hears the men discussing their choice of fuses to blow up the heavy water system. Realizing what is afoot, he politely asks the saboteurs to allow him to get his glasses. He's worried he won't be able to replace them given the scarcity of goods in wartime Norway. But the glasses are nowhere to be found. Minutes tick by as the saboteurs search for the glasses. Every second risks having a German guard discovering the men with their explosives. Finally, the glasses are located. The saboteurs send the worker off to safety and light their fuses. 30 second fuses as it happens and steal away. I'm Nancy Baselchuk, and you're listening to 63 Degrees North, an original podcast from NTNU, the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. Today, I'm going to tell you the story of the scientists and engineers who turned Norway's wild waters into what they called white coal, hydropower. More specifically, I'm going to explore some of the ways these alchemists have been working to wring every kilowatt of energy out of falling water. They include an engineer who figured out how to harness national fervour and build the 1900s equivalent of a supercomputer A World War II resistance fighter who saw something special in tiny temperature differences. And researchers today who are figuring out how pumping water backwards through a hydropower plant may be the future in a zero-carbon world. First, a little background. You may think of oil as Norway's main economic driver, and these days it is. But at the beginning of the 20th century, when Norway had just emerged as a new nation, it was hydropower that formed the underpinnings of the Norwegian economy. And it was big. Big enough to make the construction of the giant Vermark plant a sound economic investment. And more. Norway's capacity to generate cheap electricity from falling water made it a magnet for energy-intensive industries like aluminum. If you haven't heard it already, you can listen to the episode I did earlier in the season about the history of aluminum in Norway. The realization of just how valuable Norwegian waterfalls were in the early 1900s forced the Norwegian government to enact something called the panic law, to get things under control. Hans Otto Fröland, an NTNU historian, explains. One
1: law they called the panic law Because so many foreigners came to Norway to buy up waterfalls, cheap. Because it was poor peasants who who owned these waterfalls and they didn't know the future value of it.
0: Fertilizer, Norsk Hydro's main product at this time, was a perfect thing for Norway to make and export. Because it required enormous amounts of cheap energy to produce. So it was a product that could be manufactured with the natural resources, waterfalls, that Norway had to offer, as former Hydro CEO Svein-Richard Braunseig explains.
1: In 1905, Hydro was established as a corporation with the fertiliser main business. Uh, So when Hydro built out the Rutgann plant, just a few years after the company was established, the company financed the establishment in Rikan with uh, money from Sweden and and France.
0: Yes, that Rikan, the same place the saboteurs attacked during the Nazi occupation.
1: It was the biggest hydropower station in the world at that time and spent about 1.5 times the Norwegian national budget.
0: One event that happened to help drive Norway's hydropower adventure happened right here in Trondheim, right in my backyard. Right now, we are in in the
1: water power lab, which is an old building. It was built in 1970. But internal parts of the lab is quite new and up-to-date. I would say it's state-of-the-art, and in my opinion, the best one in the world, of course. My name is Uli Gunnar Dahløyk. I work as a professor at the Department of Energy and Process Engineering.
0: Uli Gunnar is pretty modest. He's also head of the water power lab. As a matter of record, the lab was built not that long after NTNU's predecessor, the Norwegian Institute of Technology, opened its doors in 1910.
1: The whole building is built upon system in, in the basement, which is, uh, consists of uh, 450,000 liters of water. We have a pump system, which can uh, pump into the system about 1,100 liters per second into the system. So yes, we can spill a lot of water here, and we have, of course. Uh, the big, pipe, big uh, tank over there consists of uh, 18 cubic meters of water, and we can pressurize it up to 100 meter water column or 10 bars, as many say. And if you look around, you see that the infrastructure is mainly built with these pipes, which are 600 millimeter in diameter.
0: It's built in a style you would expect from this era, where public buildings expressed a pride of workmanship in every detail. Even the wrought iron railings are crafted in the shape of an ornate tree with spreading branches. The building itself is five stories tall, but really narrow. To my eye, it looks like a giant antique carriage house. It was built like this so it could provide the kinds of forces you'd get from a high waterfall, which allows researchers test turbines. Turbines are the equipment that water flows through and that turn falling water into electricity. If you want to squeeze every electron possible out of falling water, you have to have an efficient turbine. Those 600 millimeter pipes Ligonar mentioned, they're big enough to crawl through so they can release a lot of water with a lot of power. And when the water power lab is running a big experiment, you can tell with your eyes closed. It feels like the whole structure hums. The man who was the brains behind the water power lab was... Gudmund Sundby. Sundby was hired in 1912 by the Norwegian Institute of Technology and realized early on what Norway needed was a laboratory where it could test turbines and improve their efficiency.
1: So he started to work politically right away, and in 1917 it was up and running. And I know that they started to build it in 1915. He only spent two years for a government that didn't have a lot of money. It was really a huge investment.
0: In today's currency, the lab costs between 40 and 50 million kroner, or roughly 6 million US dollars. To put this in context, that was about one-tenth of one percent of the entire Norwegian national budget. That may not sound like much until you realize that the American government spent one percent of its national budget on the Manhattan Project to develop the atomic bomb. Sunby came to the university from a company called Brug, a Norwegian company that got its start in 1853. They started making turbines and other equipment for hydropower production as early as 1880, and by 1900, turbines were the thing. So Sundby had practical experience, but he also had a secret weapon. An old buddy, Gunnar Knudsen, happened to be prime minister at the time that Sindhi was hired by the university. Knudsen knew that hydropower was the future for Norway, he himself had been involved in passing the panic laws that Hans Alto talked about earlier. In addition to being well-connected, Sunby had another card to play.
1: And this saw Sweden is, was doing the same thing, and I guess that also was a, a motivation.
0: Norway had only just dissolved its union with Sweden in 1905, and Norwegians still had very intense feelings about their neighbors to the east. Sundby argued that if Norway didn't invest in its ability to make turbines, Norwegian companies would have to buy turbines from Sweden. Everyone knew that hydropower was the key for Norway to enter the modern age, and no Norwegian wanted to have to depend on Sweden. You might wonder, what difference does a building make? Well, the huge size of the laboratory and its giant piping system allowed engineers to actually test scale models of different turbine designs, and fiddle with them to make them really efficient. During this period, engineers had to make careful drawings and do all their calculations by hand. Remember that 1900's equivalent of a supercomputer I mentioned at the beginning? This is it. It's not Exactly a supercomputer, because they still had to do calculations.
1: Today we have numerical tools and computers who can do it, but at that time we had to do it by hand.
0: But the Water Power Lab allowed them to test their calculations in real time by building scale models and actually subject them to the forces equivalent to a real Norwegian waterfall so they could see if what they were doing was right.
1: So you could say something about energy, in the water and energy on the turbine. And by adding those equations and looking at it, you were able to shape the blades uh, optimum.
0: The blades are the structures inside the turbine housing that the water actually strikes.
1: It was an iterative process. And I know that they spent um, days, weeks, months uh, doing these calculations.
0: Hydropower was pretty efficient, even back at this point when a hydropower plant could capture as much as 80% of the energy of the falling water and turn it into electricity. To put that in context, the most efficient of today's wind turbines only turn about 40% of the energy of the wind into electricity. By testing turbines in the water power lab, Professor Sinby and his band of engineers were able to make water turbines incredibly efficient.
1: They did experience me in this building and the people in this house, especially the professors, they developed their technology further. How to shape the blades, how to shape the geometry of the turbines, so it could could take out more than 90% of the the energy in the water. They made turbines up to 93% efficiency. Today, the state of the art is 96.
0: Almost immediately, the water power lab began delivering results that had real economic impact. The most visible project was the Morkfoss-Sulbergfoss hydropower station that was built starting in 1913 to supply Norway's capital. Norway's two turbine suppliers, Brug and Mierenwerksted, were able to test their turbines at scale, in the lab, which helped make them super efficient. When it came online in 1924, these highly efficient Norwegian-made turbines led technology writer Georg Brockman to explain, there's hardly any other academic institution in this country that has provided such rich earnings as this laboratory. Norwegian hydropower is Norway's biggest asset, and it will mean more wealth for this land if we learn how to exploit it economically than if we had discovered an extremely rich gold mine. Hydropower construction was hampered some during the 1930s because of the Great Depression. But the Second World War really turned things upside down. The Germans were intent on expanding Norway's aluminum production so they could build more fighter planes and Norwegian engineers suddenly found themselves in the position of trying to destroy the very developments they had worked so hard to create. Leif Tronstad is a really good example. He was a chemist at the Norwegian Institute of Technology, called NTH, which was one of NTNU's main predecessors. So, while he wasn't a hydropower engineer, he was the man who worked with Norsk Hydro, to design the heavy water plant in Vermork. At first, he was spying on the Nazis in Norway, but things got too hot for him, and he escaped to England. Once the British military realized how well he knew the Vermork plant, they asked him to figure out how to blow it up. It was he who organized the saboteur's attack on the plant in 1943. Then there was...
1: Knut Alming, he was the character.
0: He was a 22-year-old hydropower engineering student at NTH when the war came to Norway.
1: He was working here, and he was working with the resistance in Norway.
0: Long story short, he used the water power lab to send information about the Nazis to the UK. The Gestapo found him out and came for him, and he barely escaped with his life.
1: He came back after the Second World War, and he was a professor here.
0: But the reason you need to know about Knut Alming is that he actually took over as head of the water power lab in 1952, right as hydropower development in Norway was really taking off. Alming was a leading researcher on turbine efficiency, something that would cause him and Oonle Gunnar to cross paths in a rather unusual way decades later. Oddly enough, the best way to figure out how efficient a turbine was had to do with measuring tiny differences in water temperatures.
1: Early 50s, there was a French professor that uh, stated that he could measure the efficiency on the turbines by measuring the temperature difference between the inlet and the outlet of the turbines, stating that all losses in the turbine goes to heating the water up. So a lot of work was carried out in this lab trying to prove that. First of all, uh, they didn't understand it, and they, they doubted it was working. They wanted to prove it wrong. Actually, what happens was to prove it right. And since the 50s, they, that, that system or that way of doing the efficiency measurements on, on the power plant has been developed further here
0: at, the, at this lab. But here's the thing I find kind of mind-boggling. How do you actually measure water temperature so you can detect improvements if there are any? Where do you put the temperature probe? You can't just dangle a little thermometer in the huge outflow from a hydropower plant. And how many temperature measurements do you actually need? Ule Gunnar himself did a lot of research on this question.
1: And my contribution to it was to see how the temperature was uh, distributed over the outlet area of the turbine. So, uh, and we're talking about not, uh, it was, uh, the difference was uh, 0.01 degrees Celsius, over that cross-section area, which was in my, in this case, 20 by 10 meter. So it's, uh, it's a
0: huge uh, system. In fact, the first ever academic paper Ule Gunnar presented at a professional conference was on this research. And much to his horror, he found out that Knut Alming, the war hero who had been at the forefront of refining the use of temperature differences to determine turbine efficiencies, was in the audience. And he was known to be kind of a strict guy.
1: And I was scared because I heard these things about him, and I understood that he, if he started to, to work against me, I would be in trouble. Uh, at that time, he was a professor emeritus. He didn't say anything during the conference, um, but he came to me afterwards. And uh, and I was, uh, I was expecting him to say something that was bad or say... That, that.
0: isn't exactly what happened.
1: The first thing he asked was, uh, do you like whiskey? <laughs> so, <laughs> apparently, he is a fan of scotch whiskey. So he offered a single malt whiskey. That was, wow. So uh, I think he, he uh, and me, he appreciated the work, no doubt about that, since he offered me a glass of whiskey.
0: The reason this matters so much, not the whiskey of course, is that even a small improvement in efficiencies in hydropower turbines can really add up. A hydropower plant is kind of like a perpetual motion machine. As long as there is water in the river or in the reservoir, it can run through the turbines all the time and generate electricity. And hydropower plants and their turbines operate for decades. If they perform 10% better than a less well-designed system, you're getting that 10% extra payback every second, every hour, every day the plant is operating. These days, roughly 90% of all electricity generated in Norway comes from hydropower. Norway is actually the seventh largest hydropower producer in the world. And as is true for all big public projects, hydropower development, especially in more recent years, could be controversial, because it does have environmental impacts and part of what researchers at the Water Power Lab are studying now is how some of those impacts can be reduced. One impact happens when there are high water flows around hydropower plants. Lots of air can get trapped in the water, so much so that...
2: You can imagine it like a big soda stream.
0: That's very goodly.
2: I'm from Germany. I'm studying at TU Berlin. I'm currently writing my master thesis here at the Water Power Lab. And I'm trying to um, degas water, air air supersaturated water, which might occur on hydropower plants.
0: The problem is that if the water around hydropower plants becomes supersaturated with air, which can happen during high-flow periods, like during the spring snowmelt, it can make fish sick in the same way that divers, who have been breathing pressurized air and who come up to the surface too quickly, can get the bends. That's where gas bubbles form in their bloodstream. Fish can get it too.
2: Some power plants, there are like less fish in the water behind, or even zones without any fish. And so we are trying to have a technical solution to degas the water, which then can be used by the hydropower plant companies, hopefully
0: one day. So Vera can actually simulate what it's like downstream of a hydropower plant where the water is supersaturated with air. First they make the water.
2: We have like... A A big water tank, like a pressure tank, Um, and we can, it has, I think, 18,000 liters of water, and we can fill it up and like pressurizing it, and then we're introducing air in the tank.
0: That's your giant soda stream machine, but with air instead of CO2.
2: We have connected a channel. Um, the channel has like 18 meters of length, and in the beginning of the channel, we have an ultrasound transducer. So we're letting water from the tank running through the through the channel, and then we're implying the ultrasound. And over the channel, we have four probes, like sensors set, sitting. They measure the amount of air which is dissolved in the water. And then we are testing if we can reduce the amount of air that's... In the channel.
0: Then there's the question of what Norwegian hydropower can offer, as more and more of our electricity comes from renewable sources like wind and solar power. The challenge is that...
1: The wind doesn't blow all the time, so you need to have some kind of backing when it doesn't blow. For example, uh, we just built uh, the Europe's biggest wind farm uh, on Fosen, just uh, west of Trondheim, 1000 megawatt. In that area, it, it blows quite a lot, but sometimes it doesn't blow at all, and sometimes it is a storm. Uh, so the turbine stops when, it, when the storm is coming, and of course they stop when it stops not, when it's not blowing. So let's say that a storm is coming, and, uh, and the turbines has to shut down. 1,000 megawatt is shutting down in minutes. How do you back that up? So let's say that uh, Hydro Aluminium uh, is customer of the energy from that area, and they are. Uh, they are melting aluminium. They can't afford to stop the melter. That, that would be a disaster.
0: Well, can't you just fire up a hydropower plant? Ula Gunnar says no.
1: Let's say that we have to start it up 1000 megawatt in three minutes, or let's say 15 minutes. How do you do that? They are not designed for that. And um, uh, let's say that you, you want to have it in seconds, yeah? and that's still, and our system is not, not designed for that. So that flexibility is possible in a hydropower plan, it, but it, it is not designed for it. So we have to develop th- that technology further. So that's what's going on today.
0: Another related idea is using Norway's hydropower system as a kind of giant battery. Many of Norway's hydropower plants have an upper reservoir and a lower reservoir, with a combined water storage capacity equal to roughly 60 percent of all the water that flows into these reservoirs. There's a historical reason for this. Much of Norway's precipitation comes in the form of snow, so the Norwegian government made sure there would be enough reservoir capacity to generate electricity in the winter, when the demand is the highest.
1: Another feature of the Norwegian system is that we have a lot of dams, it, we have more than 1,000 dams, and in that dam we have a lot of water, and that water, uh, when it is in the dam, it's, it's a battery, and that battery is 87 terawatt hours. That is approximately 60 to 70 percent of the Norwegian uh, uh, annual utilization of, of energy. So that's quite a big battery. But let's say we utilize that battery different. When the wind stops to blow or the storm is coming, we could utilize that water uh, in a shorter time when we need it. And then we stop the hydropower plants when we have enough wind.
0: In days when there is more renewable energy being produced than can be consumed, that energy can be stored by using it to pump water from a lower reservoir to the upper reservoir. Then, when you need that electricity back... You just run the water you stored in the upper reservoir through the hydropower plant and generate electricity with it. But, as Ulla Gunnar said, the turbines aren't designed for this kind of off-again, on-again stress. Enter.
3: My name is Johannes Guernot. I'm a PhD candidate here at the Water Power Laboratory, and my work is on uh, flexible operation and design of Francis turbines.
0: Francis turbines are kind of turbine specifically designed to handle water flows with lots of energy and pressure, which are exactly the kinds of conditions that Norwegian hydroelectric plants operate with.
3: With more uh, energy sources like solar and wind, it will require the rest of the energy-producing system to increase their flexible operation scheme to compensate for cloudy days or more wind Uh, and since hydropower is fast acting power source it's very useful to quickly adjust according to the both the demand and the supply but of course most of the um, turbines in norway at least were designed for more stable operation at close to their design point so uh, with more flexible operation there will be more fatigue uh, which will reduce the lifetime of the runners and increase the cost of operating the plants basically.
0: Here's where being able to conduct experiments at scale in the water power lab really helps. By studying how turbines can be designed to handle these new conditions, they can make the system that much more efficient.
3: The hope is that we can use this data to actually say something about what the strain is in the blade and how the like, off-design operating conditions will affect the lifetime.
0: So you're part of the Green Revolution?
3: Yeah, I kind of feel like I am. <laughs> Hopefully we'll come up with something uh, that's actually going to be useful for
0: society and Norway and Europe. Of the saboteurs and their efforts to blow up the heavy water plant. Well, they succeeded, and all of the saboteurs were able to get away safely. Five of them skied more than 300 kilometers east to the safety of Sweden, while the rest remained to continue their work against the Nazis. The Germans did get the heavy water plant up and running again within a matter of months. But Allied bombers destroyed the facility again, and the Germans abandoned the plant in 1944. We now know that the Germans never did produce a bomb, but that was not known at the time. As for Vermork itself, it's still producing electricity in a facility with two highly efficient 100-megawatt turbines built by one of the two original Norwegian companies that helped support the water power lab, Kvarner. I'm Nancy Baselchuk, and you've been listening to 63 Degrees North, an original podcast from the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. If you'd like to learn more about the speakers on today's program or look at some of the academic publications used to write the script, check out our show notes. Sound design and editorial help from Historia Bruke. Thanks for listening.